and welcome to the Dice of Screaming Podcast. Ah! I'm your co-host, along with my partner Mike. I'm Randy, and we're here to talk about allegedly stuff. Mike. <laughs> and uh, stuff we're talking about today, as the portents foretold, we are going to be talking about a book called Fantasy Wargaming, the highest level of all. And yeah, the highest level of all, Fantasy Wargaming, compiled and edited by Bruce Galloway, uh, circa 1981, uh, for those of you who are wondering. And as, as was foretold in, uh, you know, days of yore, uh, the purpose of this examination is to look at something that, for once, represents the other end of the spectrum. I mean, we've glowed about things that we consider fantastic successes and incredibly important landmarks in gaming. And here's one that, you know, honestly, there are good reasons why it didn't go over as well as it could have. And we're going to look at some of those today. Yeah, we usually gush about things that we like to play or... We have played, and this is one we haven't played, but we've owned. And we have two copies here. We have, uh, let's see, what is this called? The Letter? Yeah, the Letter-Sized Edition. And the uh, Digest. And I have the uh, hardcover novel-sized edition. Oh, novel. The Octavo uh, versus the Quarto. Yeah, we'll uh, put pictures up on the... uh, Facebook page, so if you want to check those out and see what they look like. Of course, if you don't know what we're talking about, Fantasy Wargaming came out about uh, 1981, 82, over here. Um, it had a very evocative cover, and one that probably didn't help with the later-to-come Satanic Panic. Basically, you yeah, Baphomet about to pounce on an unsuspecting wizard or sage sitting there reading a book when you know he should be looking behind his back as out coming from this uh, biblical demonica is... Baphomet himself, old scratch. And, uh, yeah, about to strike him down. So, yep. Yeah, that it drew people's attention. Okay? Not good optics for the time, but that's where we were at. Yeah, attractively illustrated. Okay, I mean, attractively illustrated and frightening. Uh, which certainly, you know, gave a, a little boost in the sales, I'm sure. Uh, it was well done. Uh, <laughs> structurally. <laughs> but <laughs> it's the delivery, you know, it's the contents that we, we get into later that will tell us a great deal right. about where this went awry. And you can expect no less oh. from the podcast that... You can expect no less from the reheated TV dinner dessert oh. of gaming podcasts, oh. where the pudding has formed a skin. <laughs> and here at the Dice Are Screaming... We peel that skin back. That's right. <laughs> you're still hungry, and there's still something to eat on that TV dinner, so you're going to have it. Yeah. Yeah, that'll probably date us, because not many of you know the horror of 1970s TV dinner and aluminum foil tray. But. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, hey, they've come a long way, baby. <laughs> you know, when the parents had to work late, and, uh, you know, this was what was in the fridge... That can be done in a matter of minutes with no prep time. Just heat the oven up and shove those in there and plop the kids in front of uh, t- you know, tonight's episode of The Incredible Hulk. And they're happy. They don't care. Hey, fish sticks? Eh, good enough. But that pudding, that, that pudding skin though, seriously. <laughs> but yep, we're the podcast that will delve in there. And so this is, we're talking about Fantasy Wargaming, which again... Uh, as we get into this, we're going to 
trying to be a little bit more critical because this isn't one where you can kind of gush about this. There isn't a whole lot good about this one, but it's... We will mention the parts that I, I think are especially pleasing. Right, uh, so... So, in fairness, you know, to uh, the compilers, editors, and creatives that worked on this, uh, it, it's not like it was done with total and complete incompetence or greed. It was, I believe, very much done out of love. Well, right. Well, before we get into it fully, let's do our rolling of the augury and see what is foretold into the future. We continue the Great Campaign series, uh, the evolution of the first module-based super campaign, uh, following up on our earlier episode. For AD&D, which is... For, yes, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, uh, with series A1 through 4. Oh, nice, okay. Uh, which we had covered before the Slave Lords. We had uh, covered the Temple of Elemental Evil uh, in the village of Hamlet. Uh, this will be the continuation of that. Oh, great. So, something to look forward to. Yeah, the Slave Lords, the compilation, and also the modules themselves, how they were grouped together really in the first part. So, that will be something that uh, yeah, the, D&D's history, I mean. The kind of semi-intuitive, like partially instinctive evolution of a series of modules that was released uh, being incorporated into what eventually became what people perceive as the first super campaign. Yeah, super module, which was the three put together. Each one of those three put together made a like epic a, campaign. But it's like a whole collection of separate ant hills, but they still belong to the same super hive. Uh, yeah, the, and the so ant overmind. We'll be talking about that next week. So tune in for that one. Yes, the Oniromancer right. has seen this in his dreams. Uh, no more sheep gut fondling. Yeah, casting the uh, bones into the pit yeah, and reading where they land. Yes. Now that brings us back to fantasy yeah, wargaming. Yeah, let's get into it. Fantasy wargaming. So, again, as we were talking about in the early 80s, it came out. And, boy, that cover was pretty evocative. And if you were in uh, Walden Books... At that time, a part of the science fiction book club, you could not escape this. This was prominently displayed at, by actual purpose by Walden Book staff because that was meant they put a lot of money into this. It was part of their collection of books. I mean, Stein and Day are the publishers of this, and of course, it's an English publication, but made it over here. And yes, they got uh, publishing rights uh, first in the United Kingdom and then followed through with uh, an American publishing company and got distribution to major venues uh, during the, I believe, the second, third, and fourth reprintings, uh, which it's astonishing that they went through several reprintings. Uh, One, obviously, they were not doing gargantuan initial printings. Uh, I think they foresaw that this was a niche market item, but there proved to be an initial demand. Right, it's an attractive copy, and definitely, to many of the products at the time, it stands out with its clarity. And if you look at the detail put into the cover alone, especially the back, where you basically see these albemics. Oh, yes, the alembic. And, alembics, uh, I'm sorry. And uh, you know, therbials and centrifuge, or uh, forges, excuse me, 
you see definitely the gamut of medieval alchemy and occultism all through there. So Oh yeah, I mean there's skulls, there's a Kabbalic, uh, you know, a scrap of paper with Kabbalic representations upon it. Uh, you know, both the artist, uh, I, I will say that the artist as well as the authors uh, had a really serious knowledge of uh, classical uh, Western mythology in particular, especially uh, you know, Norse and Anglo-Saxon uh, European mythologies. So I cannot fault their literacy at all. Certainly there was a huge degree of enthusiasm in what they right. undertook. But uh, initially, on, as it says on the cover, compiled and edited by Bruce Galloway. And this kicked off in 81. Yeah. Um, it was first published in the United States in 82, but it was actually a conglomeration of authors, Bruce Galloway, Mike Hodston-Smith, Nick Lowe, Bruce Quarry, and Paul Sturman. Now, as I understand it from the blog Swords and Darkery, they actually does a very in-depth, um, forgive me, I can't remember the name offhand, didn't uh, write it down as much uh, on the entry, but we'll make uh, a link in in our uh, Facebook page to his blog. Yeah, and Swords you can and Darkery. I mean, you know, that... He talks about fantasy wargaming. And as we talk about these guys, they were all at Cambridge, as it turns out. And uh, most of them have passed on, unfortunately, including Bruce Galloway, who uh, Mike and I were talking earlier. We thought he was some kind of uh, older gentleman, like in his early 50s, 40s, about our age right now. And, uh, yeah, we, we assumed by the tone of the writing in the editorial sections, uh, most of which, much of the compilation and you know, post-editing and introductory stuff was written by Bruce Galloway. Well, as it turns out, uh, he was actually only in his 20s at the time that this was written and compiled. It's just that his tone as a writer was that of a person far, far older. Yeah, he did take kind of a high-handed approach, but... You know, you're used to reading out of the DM's Guide, but that'll bring us to the next point. We'll stick a pin in that one. Just say that these guys were all at uh, Cambridge, and they were Napoleonic Wargamers, and they wanted to bring a level of detail. And right there from the bat, the title, Fantasy Wargaming, you would think, like, okay, are they talking? Nowadays, we think we would be talking about a miniatures wargaming format. Not at all. Back in that time that this book... Well, a couple of years previous to when this book was actually published, fantasy wargaming was actually a term for Dungeons and Dragons type games, wherein you would have a much more smaller play area, like a dungeon or a small wilderness area to explore. And yeah, you would have miniature figures to enact certain parts of it, like as we've talked about before, substituting uh, Polish Asars out for Elven. Yeah, uh, I mean, this Calvary. goes back to the very infancy of gaming. I mean, uh, the white box set, uh, chainmail rules. Uh, you know, Galloway and others at Cambridge, I mean, they acknowledge directly in uh, Fantasy Wargaming, the book here, that at the end of the 70s had seen this metamorphosis of standard wargaming going from tabletop minis exclusively and uh, exclusively, you know, classic style, uh, literal scenario uh, traditionalists to an exploding interest in fantasy topics where, you know, like, hey, you know, instead of hussars, 
let's pretend these are riders of Rohan. Right. And it, that explosion is part of what brought it to yeah, Cambridge and brought their to, attention. Oh, what brought Chainmail to D&D. Fantasy Wargaming was looking at D&D. And they mentioned Dungeons and Dragons and Tunnels and Trolls, which kind of, I think, gives us a, a date for where this book was at. Because a lot of the things that they mention here... I never really seen a much of a need for because I had the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide and I thought, well, as people make fun of what an organizational mess that was, boy, they hadn't read this book. And this came out <laughs> afterwards, so what was your excuse? I was always kind of like, wow, you... But it does make a certain point of sense in hindsight looking back that that those things weren't available yet when they were probably doing this research. And they had the entire library of Cambridge at their disposal, so that explains a little bit. Uh, each one was given a certain task or chapters to write, and we'll get into that in a minute, but it's not really clear who is what. I think just uh, Galloway's sense of humor, and he passed on in 84, tragically. Uh, now, as high-handed, I'll, I'll pay the guy his due, uh, as high-handed as his voice in uh, the writing of most of the text turned out to be, uh, he included a series of like at the front of every chapter a smart alecky title or subtitle for the chapter uh, just to make it less serious because he was actually committed to you know it's it's taking itself too seriously and I don't want to do that I, it's supposed to be about fun uh, so uh, now he these may not have uh, been you know giants of comedy uh, like the section on arms and armor was uh, like a poniard in your cod piece. Um. Yeah. The, these guys, when they put this together, um, they, the note here writes from Cambridge, May 1981. So that's when they finished. Uh, so, yeah, let's get into this full force on this one. Just right, take the yeah, deep dive. Let's, let's this breaks down into a preamble and then into several chapters of medieval life, uh, the relationship of the church, as well as the intonation of magic. Now, as we all know, in medieval life, magic and superstition played a great part, but this one is basically takes it a little step further. That's where it becomes the fantasy part, that magic is actually a real force here. So there's two types of magic to break down in this one, but again, this is not laid out in a great organization area. It spends time talking about it, and you spend almost several chapters before you get to the chapter on character creation, but yet like a, a medieval course, you're expected to read all this stuff before you even get into the character creation because you have to be versed into the medieval mindset. And when you do this, they get you fully into the ideas of the combat system, before explaining it. They, and they even go into a nice little, uh, we'll stick a pen in this one too, uh, chapter five, their appendix N, well it's not named appendix N. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it does have an interesting... Whatever takes your fantasy, and it, it shows their great affection for novelists of science fiction and fantasy uh, of the previous century, well, of that century, you know, from the pulp writings of Robert E. Howard uh, to Marion Zimmer Bradley's Dark Over novels, uh, 
you know, to uh, John Norman, uh, and you know, also nod to Mr. Hainlin. Many of the same great loves in uh, fantastic and science writing uh, science all fiction. pop up. Science fiction writing pop up uh, in this, in their little dedication here. But, yeah, but you get through all these chapters, and then you finally, in chapter seven, you get up to creating your character, which they don't even tell you how to do it. They just tell you to start doing it. So you have to basically guess that it's three dice six. Now, the interesting thing here is that you determine at your character's generation. Uh, you roll up your stats, which there are basically 11. Two of them are negative, which is an interesting factor that, let's see, selfishness and lust. So those are ones you want low. <laughs> Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to have some problems. Yeah. Um, but you also determine your astrological birth sign. I, also I am going to mention that that, like, while it's a gigantic thorn in the ass for players, okay, the, the notion here was that if you look at some of the chronicles of historical figures, such as Arthurian knights, the things that got them into trouble were selfishness and lust. You know, the mistakes that they were capable of making. Uh, and so this kind of gave the, the DM, like, a clearinghouse option, like, Oh, you got a lust of 11, so, you know, this is going to hose you, buddy. You know, you, you don't get to say no in this encounter. You're, you're basically going to just rampage in and be like, yeah! Yeah, so... Quaint, but poorly executed. Yeah, I, Pendragon would do it better, but I'm not completely uh, unconvinced that yes. there wasn't a healthy dose of the Arthurian measure put into making these stats. So... Anyway, these guys from Cambridge set out to do, they felt that the in the preambles to these, they specifically call out how they think that some of the games like Dungeons and & Dragons and Tunnels and Trolls don't do a very good job of presenting fantasy material or a campaign world worthy of adventuring. So they go out to correct this. Now, they're doing a fine job up to this point, but here you see the physical attributes. Here are um, your physique, agility, and endurance. And then they go into mental, which are intelligence, literacy, and languages. And then if you're going to want to practice magic, you need a high faith or piety if you're going to be a priest of some type, or mana if you're going to be a sorcerer or a wizard. And personality scores such as charisma, greed, leadership, selfishness, bravery and lust, and other special attributes are the third part of this and then you determine your father's social position your family rank and all that fun stuff that is very important in a medieval recreation however at this point um they also have some skills like riding climbing and swimming tracking stealing and strangely singing and so there's basically only three classes you can play there's warriors which women can't be there are priests which are well the highest ranks are reserved for men and the lowest ranks are reserved for women being only nuns and then uh, there's kind of the wizard class which are we'll get into a little bit but it's interesting the cabalists runic magicians and witches are also part of the deist tradition or uh, each separate but yet similar to the deist tradition which is the default setting and so you create your character, and then one of the more <clears throat> infamous parts of this game is the bogey table. And I'll let Mike take over for that. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah, that's right. This is the individual quirks table. 
uh, of which there were not a great many like this at the time that this was published. Uh, it's not that the concept wasn't out there. Uh, <laughs> uh, it decidedly was, but it, it wasn't widespread. So uh, here they introduced just uh, two columns of potential character quirks. Oh, um, and what was the dice to be rolled for these? Well, percentile? well, most of the system here, and let's let's just uh, take a step back just for a bit. If you wanted to understand how convoluted the system is, so like if you wanted to figure out your leadership score, which was a derived statistic, you would have to take three times your charisma, add your physique, add your intelligence score, then add your bravery, and then take your social class and times that by four, and then divide all that by ten to get your leadership score. Yeesh. Yeah, so this one, the bogey table, their <laughs> idea for this was you roll, throw a six-sided die, they say throw, not roll, and one to two, you roll once, three to four, you roll twice, and five to six, three times. Now, zero, one, or one, two, thirty-four, nothing. Just, it, you don't get any, nothing of... Uh, yeah, percentile dice, you switch to percentile dice. Yeah, uh, this one... Uh. And then you would roll percentile dice, and of course, uh, 1 through 34, no result. But 35 all the way to 0, 0. Yeah, it starts yep. getting weird. You can start getting snoring or body odor, which, you know, people avoid you. Uh, keen hearing, smell, you know, or uh, things like that. I mean, there's, there's some ups and downs. Uh, homosexuality, bisexuality. Yeah. Uh. You're a Jewish, a heretic, or an atheist, which... It says, you will be persecuted and shunned by all right-minded Christians. Mm, wow, okay. Two things that are, are kind of really, uh, once you get up in the high ends, which are prophecy, healing hands, and good luck. Oh, but that's not all. You can also get lycanthropy. 1% chance. Uh, <laughs> Just turn it into a crazy creature every once oh, in a while. Wolf, bear, or dog, once a month for 12 hours. <laughs> Your choice notwithstanding. So uh, just all kinds of weird things, uh, up to and including mechanical like aptitude. And it it was an interesting choice. Okay, this is not one of the the negative traits, but I I, I do consider it a little on the chaotic side. Uh, and man, this this was very much a system that just said let the chips fall where they may. You know, there was no attempt to measure this. Uh, you know, if random rolls were to determine everything in terms of background, you could just wind up with the wildest combos of characters. Nothing was streamlined in a way to smooth it over so that, like, okay, uh, I just wanted to make a warrior. <laughs> How did I wind up being the illegitimate child of a duke who is wanted for his notorious homosexuality? <laughs> You're a... Inverted Pisces, who is a homosexual. <laughs> so, your guide to race. Yeah, well, ah, yes. <laughs> well, and, you know. And, and that's what they were going for, is that a lot of figures, historical ones, had some quirks to them. And that's what they wanted to give Mr. you as adventurers. Does that lampshade have a tattoo? <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh. um, they wanted to give a sense... That adventurers were unique individuals, sometimes separated from society by various things that they did. And, you know, you have figures like Ivar the Boneless, which we can translate roughly to meaning maybe he was limb, uh, 
he couldn't walk or was born with a deformity in a culture that really didn't uh, cotton much to taking care of its uh, people like in that state. Uh, something had to be exceptional about that fellow so that he would be remembered. Other people will say that he was impotent or whatever. but We'll never know, but the fact that the name stuck out through history gives you the inclination, and I think that they're right to pick on this, is that there was a lot of unique characters in the medieval world that were known for some of their negative attributes, besides just body odor, which I think at that time, I think it just about everybody had a little body odor problem. I'm trying to remember the Byzantine uh, inheritor. I, I think it was uh, John something, the something, mm. Capronimus, uh, which literally meant shit name uh, because on the event of his baptism as an infant, he crapped all over the fountain. Oh, boy. So that stuck with him forever, and that was the distinguishing title. To separate yeah, him from not, all the other Johns that had occupied the throne, that one got John Shitname. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. During his History naming. was super cruel about these things. But, I, all right, pausing for a moment for a kind of meta view. Okay. One of the flaws in this game. One of the many. Is its blessing. Okay. It, here, this enormous effort was undertaken to spell out the realities of everyday medieval life in a fantasy wargaming aspect. Uh, so that while you were playing, you would have this intense degree of uh, historical realism. The truth be told, I don't think that is what people really wanted. Okay, now, having the option there, like the knowledge, to insinuate into a campaign is useful and educational, and it, it helps you understand the like organizational systems for uh, an ancient society or a medieval uh, economic landscape. That's great and helpful, but it becomes a straitjacket when you launch, you know, into you know, basically, how come everyone's covered in shit? Right, and <laughs> how can you tell who the king is? He's the only one who's not covered in shit. You know that that state of being wears down on players if like it's completely constant uh, you know like horses cost a fortune so you walk everywhere unless your character is insanely rich uh, and everything like 90 plus percent of everybody you meet surf farmer yep yeah surf farmer surf farmer's wife surf farmer's child that's like almost all of the population <laughs> uh, and woe betide ye if you meet anybody of noble birth because they'll think you suck and either you're useful to them in which case you will be commanded to do stuff uh, or you're not useful to them uh, unless you have some taxable wealth upon your person which they will then steal all of so it was a crappy kind of world and while they delivered this fantastic examination of everyday medieval life, they incorporated all of it into gameplay. So, well, especially with the sexism. Like Mike said, if you're playing a medieval recreation, yeah, you would be okay to think those things. But in the attitudes of the gaming world at that time, that wasn't going to fly. Yes, women could easily be witches and move forward, but they're restricted to nuns in the clergy, and they couldn't even be warriors. So, 
I mean, anybody heard of Bradamante? I mean, come on. Uh, but, all right, so they were the exceptions and not uh, to the rule rather than anything else. But, again, nobody's, nobody's stopping you from changing the rules, but at the same time, there's kind of this authoritative top-down look that this is how you're supposed to play, and that's how it's presented. Now, I'm not going to get into the combat system too much, but I am going to say this about the world. When I read it, I was underwhelmed. I'm like, really? If I wanted to play in a more... We can't have women in as warriors, but we can have magic and monsters running around. Okay, I guess that's just the way it is. But if I wanted a better representation, I'd be playing Harn, because at least Harn got away from some of the tropes of the overall church and got more into the polytheism that we're familiar with with D&D. But anyway... They actually do. A lot of people don't get this about fantasy wargaming is true. There were three different defaults. Now, of course, the, the one that they present is the Anglo-Saxon 12th through 14th century Europe. Nominally centered in England. So you get the North Umbria, the Cambria, and all that. The, you know, the areas of Mercer and Liverpool and all the... Cornwall and Wales yeah, and all the places of English import can be your background. However, you're also offered the chance for Celtic, which is the Welsh, Irish as an adventuring area, more set during the Arthurian times, but also during the more wild Celt days. And of course, Teutonic, which would be uh, the North. Germany, Poland, you know, that the entire region uh, working its way up to Scandinavia. So Yep, they provide, yeah, you could play the Teutonic, that part, and that medieval realm, but also they provided the Norse. And they provide all the stats, and strangely enough, there are stats for God and the Virgin Mary, which got them in a little hot water in this one. I mean, yeah, you got the stats <laughs> for God, not that you can really kill him, but... No, yeah, I mean... It, he's going to just zap you with a lightning bolt and you're gone, but or turn you into a pillar of salt, Yeah, this, and then you're done. You know, uh, these were presented not so much so that you could defeat them, uh, but, like, how to understand the occasional... So let's say Odin, and Odin gets in a fight with God. What would happen? Well, God would have his hands full, but he'd probably emerge victorious. Oh, that's all right. Odin always finds a way out. Yep. Um, that's not the first time Odin bit off more than he could chew and found a way out of it. So yeah, but you even have they give the the Celtic gods Brigid and Arwen and all of them. There's a lot to to chew on this and so they present pretty much just the standard English medieval period so if you wanted to go to the Viking, Teutonic or Celtic route it's there and, and also they mentioned the the Jew um, the Jewish traditions of Kabbalah as a magician and so you could again widen the scope but of course as a Jewish person they are not I about saying how medieval society treated Jewish people or Muslims at that time. Yeah, I mean, let's let's be candid. Uh, the statements inside the game book are not intended as some kind of uh, oh yeah form of approval, uh, but rather a tacit acknowledgement that the ancient world was uh, virulently uh, anti-Semitic and racist. Uh, that just basically, you know, insular societies of people who rarely traveled and had uh, very little in the way of personal wealth, uh, one of the few things they had available to them was the ability to hate somebody who isn't like them. Uh, like, well, I can't afford much, but I can afford to hate you. And so, uh, 
there was a candid acknowledgement in this that that was a normal part of the ancient world. Now, that having been said, uh, the areas in which they focused play uh, kind of limited the scope to, uh, you know, central and northern Europe, uh, to Scandinavia and the uh, British Isles. I, that was about all you got. Now, I'm not really going to fault them for that because at some point or another, if you try to cover the entire planet, you wind up with a much bigger book that takes a great many more years. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to let them have a pass on that one. They, they took the areas in which they were most specialized in their knowledge historically, and they published material about that. So limited it may be, but I mean, there's a good enough reason for that. Yeah, and to touch on the combat system, which comes next, you go find the magic system and the combat system scattered throughout the book. I mean, the magic system is right after the co- the uh, chapter for mass combat. So at one point, you're recreating the Battle of Hastings with the Saxons and Normans, and the next thing you know, you're back uh, now studying about the different types of magic out there, conjuration and divination. And you're like, okay. I mean, I just, well... Well, no, but uh, you were saying the combat system. Yeah, and so this combat system is littered throughout the entire book in three different places, as a matter of fact, with charts that go sideways rather than up and down, which is (laughs) weird. But, okay, I mean, that's the thing. Um, The combat system is is what you would expect for somebody trying to recreate all the nuances of medieval combat. It's very fiddly. There are many, many modifiers, and all the... When I went over how to get a drive stat of leadership, here you have the idea of you have to have derive stats, which, hey, RuneQuest and Basic Roleplaying did the same thing, but they did it a lot more streamlined. This one goes through and modifies everything, and then you have to go back and recheck the entire stat. It's uh. a little bit of work, but again, it's a percentile system of hit and location, damage, and armor. And you do armor checks to see if it stops the damage. And most of the time, it starts to get pretty grim. And, yeah, bravery and luck all play a big factor into that. Luck mostly in the dice and bravery a stat. To stay in the fight, your character has to keep making morale checks when they get wounded. And, you know, if you're very brave, then you don't have to make many checks. But eventually everybody has to make an eye uh, check to see if they want to stay in a fight where they're losing constantly. So that's kind of an interesting part. Now, the one thing where you get into the combat system is they go from the man-to-man combat system back into the mass combat system, which they use the Battle of Hastings and um, with the Normans and the Anglo-Saxons fighting it out for control of England, which we all know how that ended. But, right, this is where one of the parts of this actually shines. And strangely enough, it's probably, given the fact that these guys were war gamers, their war gaming system is actually pretty gameable. It's not really that obtruse. It's made yeah. to be quick, and you can resolve this in a relatively short matter of time. Uh, uh, aside from complementing their hyper-literacy on almost everything that they, they covered and brushed up against that was of historical relevance, the second big takeaway plus side of this book that like has to, we got to hand one kudo to them this would be the big one um, the war gaming t- 
tabletop miniature aspect of it uh, was not poorly thought out. In fact, you could tell that this was where they had a lot of experience that was already informing them as they wrote this. Whereas the formulas and charts and calculations to develop secondary Weapons scores, types versus armor. Hey, you heard this from AD&D, but yeah. this one they said, hey, that's not complex enough. Let's double the complexity. Algebra? That's for wussies. Oh, we're getting some trig going here. Yep. You know, just, yeah. Just grossly unnecessary overcalculation for even the most rudimentary undertakings. Except... In their wargaming section, where it granted, it's still a lot of stuff like um, you have to number the the presence. Let's see here. Well, I'll just read this. The Normans, as a smaller force, count one hundred percent, and the Saxons therefore count as three hundred and twenty to one ninety times one hundred one hundred sixty eight percent. And so you add thirty for their long spears, thirty for charging. Yeah, if you can get through that, it works rather well because it's a single roll. And then you determine determine stats and start over again. And of course, it's based on what your troops have, so that factors in well. And I ended up using this several times to help determine the result of mass combat with the AD and D game, especially when it came to followers, because this was very specific to the types of weapons that your troops can and quality that they had. Yeah, it gave a good comparison of the relative strengths of ancient equipment uh, versus other types of ancient equipment. You know, where what kind of advantage? Well, right, you would see the, the followers of a cleric and a fighter be different in their armament and equipment. You know, basically alluding to at one point the Hussites in one of the results. Yes, the followers of Jan Hus. And you know, uh, heavily armed herskels of. The Saxons with axes and swords and heavy hauberks of chainmail. Yeah, you saw those in your fighter uh, follower tables in the first edition, but here you could actually use them, and this one gave you a pretty good uh, advantage. But again, a Findlay system, but strangely quick. After you figure out all the little pluses and minuses, and this is goes to the whole game. And yeah, the magic system. Uh, right afterwards, in the mass combat follows the magic system. Now we're learning all sorts of things. So, yeah, there is Kabbalism. There's a mention of witchcraft. <coughs> Excuse me. And then there they go right into the straight and forward runic magic. Oh, my goodness. Now, and this one depends on I, what time. And a lot of this thing, it was just looking at the uh, physical correspondences. What phase of the stars are in alignment with your birth sign versus your targets or <laughs> the type of spell. Uh, yeah, one like, of the Ooh. most exhaustive systems ever crafted in the history of all of gaming. Uh, there have been few as incredibly obscure and uh, convoluted as this. So if you combine uh, a huge number of external factors that will influence uh, every encounter. Uh, and then the habitual, like, okay, break down the calculation of this, this, and this, and this, and this, divided by this, yeah. divided by that. Uh, it is just yep. mind shattering. You can tell that these were very smart Cambridge persons who, I'm sure, understood this perfectly. The rest of us, however, uh, 
<laughs> like, holy cow, what do we... I just want to cast a freaking spell, okay? I just want to know what happens. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to have to sit down and figure this out. Yeah, well, they reference Jack Vance uh, in their little appendix and like section. Uh, <laughs> they did not draw from Jack Vance's magic system in his novels the way D&D did, which uh, elegantly created a system that was easy to manage and notate. This did not... Uh, yeah, and just looking at it, so like witchcraft deals a lot with the natural world as well as enchantments, and that is dealt with. Kabbalism deals with very exacting factors of numerology and plays into that whole astrological chart. The deism of the magic concerns itself with conjuration, which is mostly conjuring forces in, so basically you can blast people with spells or summoning things, which is very tough. Oh, and believe me, the table of various things that uh, become bonuses and or penalties to your casting attempts is copious. Yeah, and they're trying to... But rather than just saying that they did this willy-nilly, each, everything that they put in there has a rhyme and a reason why it's there. It's just, it doesn't really add anything, and it often will probably detract from the enjoyment of playing the game. However... If you are looking for a spell system that reflects some forms of astrology, herbalism, and numbers, and as well as runes, you could do worse than pick up a few ideas from this. And I think that shows a little bit of how deep they delved into their subject matter. Yeah, the scrupulous dedication to historical accuracy, once again, on the one hand it giveth, on the other hand it taketh away. Yeah. Uh, it becomes so cumbersome that I... Uh, I cannot imagine what a playtesting session must have been like. Yeah. Uh, well, they also have piety and uh, faith-based powers, which work on a relative scale of your, how faithful you are to your, your religion, which is more of a spell point system for this one. But, again, the factors aren't really clear. There's, you know, a miracle is a miracle. If God wills it, so shall it be. If Thor uh, grants you power in combat, you'll probably end up going berserk, or perhaps a uh, storm will arise or clear in your favor. That's all there is to it, and then you move on. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot of uh, convoluted uh, undertakings in order to achieve what I I think are some ill-defined effects. Yeah, and... They did provide some definition for a few possibilities just to... Yeah, the gods have definite spheres of control. But, man, oh man, uh, uh, big intro, small delivery. <laughs> it's like the opening theme. Uh, if you can imagine uh, the symphonic opening for Star Wars, except that just as it trails off, just as the credit part is over and you're supposed to settle into this, uh, you know, unfolding events, uh, after that huge opening theme... All of a sudden, it's uh, just a dude sitting there scribbling notes in a book, quietly, for like an hour and a half, and that is the entire movie. Um, So, (laughs) that sense of disappointment uh, wanders throughout this book. Uh, An enormous amount of effort and calculation necessary to accomplish some not terribly exciting things. Interesting, perhaps. Uh... Especially exciting? No. Uh, the factors and notes for spell specialization. 
Oh, yeah. The wise woman or cunning man, witch or wizard, the high or runic sorcerer, and the Kabbalist all have different tables yeah. and specialization. Yeah, that's what I thought was interesting is that in true reference to the medieval, the, the rune caster, the wise woman, the witch, Appeals the to higher or lower powers, had their mm-hmm. own circumstances and bonuses. Uh, yep, because yeah. you could be a satanic priest in this. <coughs> yeah, you could be a gothic sorcerer who has dedicated himself to dark powers. Um, you could also be a high Kabbalist who is, you know, very much a servant of the light, uh, but you know knows that they are committing a moderate sin by calling upon angels and angelic beings, uh, imploring them for ser- you know, for services. Act. Not necessarily an ignoble act, but a sinful one, because you know to usurp God's authority is automatically a sin in this. Uh, yeah, but it's a class one sin, uh, as opposed to like actually, you know, servant of the dark. I love that they give Joseph of Arimathea stats in this one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Uh, you know, and then, you know, you also have Lucifer. And, now, I, uh, I do want to flip to the end to the rather uh, rather small and uh, ill-filled-out bestiary uh, with some, some of the things contained within will be very familiar to the mythological reader. I mean, the, the basilisk or cockatrice, the amphisbena, the <laughs> uh, or chimeras, uh, dragons, and things of that nature. Yes, okay, those are all there, including stuff like nightmares. And uh, some of you may recall the Opinicus, uh, which <laughs> uh, appears historically, so it also made it into this with the, man- the manticore, the lamia. But there are a few other things. Um, the black worm of the barrow. There is a mound that is called the Dolorous Mound, and in the mound there is a barrow, and in the barrow there is a worm, and in the worm's tail there is a stone, and the virtues of the stone are that whosoever should have it in one hand, what he would desire of gold, he should have in his other hand. Uh, The mound is surrounded by a camp of pavilions, each housing a knight who has gone there to slay the worm but hasn't had the nerve, and anyone thinking to enter the barrow has to overthrow this jealous mob or slip past them. Uh, And then it gives the physique, agility, and endurance, uh, combat factors, size and speed, uh, and armor class of the Black Worm of the Barrow. Uh, And it's a Welsh Arthurian director. There is a creature here called the Bonacan. (laughs) Oh, good lord. Which was the uh, very timid, harmless-seeming bull, uh, but at the first whiff of trouble, it turns tail and runs. Now, Paradoxically, this is when it's at its most dangerous, for as the Cambridge bestiarist tells us, when he turns to run away, he emits a fart with the contents of his large intestine, which covers three acres, and any tree that it reaches catches Holy fire. cow! <laughs> Literally! Yeah. Boom! Uh, three acres? What the hey? It's not a very large bestiary. Uh, it does cover the, you know, like, uh, Dark Ages dwarves, uh, High Middle Ages dwarves, uh, the courtly elves and fairies, the diminutive tiny elves and fairies of various uh, European mythos. But 
it doesn't go into much discussion at all about them. It, it really leaves you their stats and then allows you to more or less fill in the blanks, which it's great to be allowed that, but a little more information. Especially from people with the appropriate access to a great library of lore. Could have done a little bit better on, but I digress. I mean, Celtic and Norse giants, ghosts, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, dead guys in this one. The Kraken, Grendel, Fenris the wolf, the Midgard serpent. Oh, yeah, I just want to fight him. Uh, Unicorn, vampire. Oh, Oh, hey, trolls. Go figure. All right, but yeah. You know, you, you get the picture here that. Once again, uh, it giveth and it taketh away uh, some wonderful inclusions of some lesser-known, uh, lesser-covered uh, mythological creatures. But again, very little time taken to explain where they belong, how to make the best use of them. Uh, basically, leaving people high and dry. Like, here's the raw stats. This is the yep. thing that has these stats. And then, you know, what is what are they doing there? When would they show up? Where do they not show up? Nothing. You're left in the dark. And considering that this is the dawn of role-playing, where much of that needed to be explained to the people about to undertake this, it missed the mark yet again. Yeah, their attempt was is to bring a more detailed world, which they did bring detail, but the detail that they brought was... Oh, some... brother, did they ever... The detail that they brought... Was like buried a, a lot of those facts underneath a weighty system of numbers that really didn't help anything. Uh, like a fire hose aimed at a teacup. Okay. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, it, it literally shattered it, and you had no other way of understanding why they would make such a convoluted system. And, you know, it just also wasn't something that the market wanted. Um, Harn which we'll be talking about soon enough, did it pretty well in developing, like, hey, did you ever want to get in a sword fight and die of septicemia? Welcome to Harn. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we can fulfill that wish for you. <laughs> oh, man, I totally slaughtered that guy, but he just hit me once. Oh, welcome to Cal Drogo. Ooh, yeah, you totally owned the crap out of that guy, but he cut you, and it turns out the wound got infected after several days, and now you're dead. What? Yeah. Oh, man. How did people survive in the Middle Ages dying all the time? <laughs> I don't understand it. Yeah, they'll have to kill me before I die. And yeah, while it's realistic, let's put it this way. People are wanting to play something a little bit more heroic. And again, we make a lot about this game. I think that it's, this is an unplayable system. There are people on Dragon's Foot... Uh, this claim that they played or have are playing several campaigns with it. And, hey, I'm not going to take away from them. That's what you did. But much like uh, Mike said earlier, if everybody who ever attended Woodstock or says they attended Woodstock actually did. Oh, yeah. New York would have sunk into the sea. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, among boomers, like, yeah, I was at Woodstock. Yeah, dude, you were in Indiana working at a gas station. Yeah, just shut the, the, shut, the shut up. Uh, so... Yeah, Sucking deep down, I really want to say that if I were to define exactly what went wrong here, it is an, a perfect example of lack of balance. Okay? This is a book of extremes. 
some of those extremes drift into the admirable, and some of them drift into the less admirable. Uh, but it did not have moderation, it did not have balance, it was indigestible uh, and terribly confusing to the new player, which, considering at the time at which it was published, was more or less all players. Uh, this emerged only a few years after the like initial rush of D&D, when they made the like leap to major publication with the first edition rules, uh, and then just a few years on the tail of the emergence of Dungeons and Dragons, along came fantasy wargaming, and even Walden the, Books wanted to jump on a bandwagon yeah. and get their own role playing game, and they saw this as an entryway. Now there wasn't, of course, a thing that they produced themselves. No. Or, probably like the rest of us never understood but they figured hey that's not our purview we need to sell something and this is one we can get mine which is explains why it was so prominent yeah the success of dungeons and dragons meant that like it basically the high tide raised all boats and so even games like this wound up getting a level of distribution support that they probably did not actually merit uh, the novelty of it made the sales uh, of the comparatively modest print runs uh, fairly successful. I mean, it, they printed, they reprinted four times before it went out of print entirely. Right, and I think the one thing is is that uh, apologies should be made to anybody who got into gaming via the, the vehicle of this one, if they even managed to survive. I, I wonder how many people bought this thinking, hey, I'll get into gaming because it's right up my alley, maybe more studious person, a little bit older, settled, this is what they're looking for. I like for. Arthurian and ancient Norse mythos. This should be perfect. Nope. <clears throat> Harsh lesson. Yeah. <laughs> so when it says at the top, the highest level of all, well, I think it fails. And the two things that's out of here, it's a great read for just... We'll see. The cover price right here was fourteen ninety five. At the time, it was not a you know overwhelming or yeah. It contained all price. three things you needed: a, a game mastery advice, a magic system, players, character generation, and a bestiary. So, yeah. I'm gonna say that the side information is fantastically educational. These sections that you can learn about medieval life, especially the coinage system. Yeah, you can gain a lot from the reading of this book. Uh, you will not gain a lot in terms of owning a terrific game system to play with friends, but you will have gained a lot of knowledge. So, Right, and <laughs> rather than some of the things of herbalism and magical circles being fluff in the DM's guide, here they give them actual game value stats, so there's something to be salvaged from there. Yeah. My takeaways is the recommended reading list, and which is very entertaining. It's just the three pages of... Fairly easy to digest pros and recommendations. Pretty close to us, as well as... Well, hey, they're a big Hanlon fan, too, so... Not always on board with his politics, but always on board with his debates. And love that. Uh, apparently that was shared by whoever wrote that one. Um, and the wargaming. Again, a little weighty on the pre-calculation, but if you get that ahead of get that done ahead of time and know what you're facing as the dungeon master, this makes a pretty sweet system. Let's the players have actual input into what goes on and gives a relatively fast resolution to mass combat. Great stuff. True. 
So those are the two things I think that save it. And it's kind of bad in a way that we talk, we still try to find ways to talk good about a such a bad product. Okay. And a lot of people beat up on it's it. It's the Rocky Horror Picture Show of the Fantasy Wargaming set, okay? I mean, it's so bad it's nice almost analogy. good. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's the Dicer Screaming podcast of the Fantasy Wargaming set. It's Yeah, it's a rambling, incoherent mess yeah. of just But that's but, why we alternately love it and uh, hate it, okay? When we we speak of this, it was a part of the time and the place, and so we got to speak of it with love. Uh, but there is some stuff here well worth the criticizing of. I think it speaks more about us that we try to always look for the positive in things and try to be as fair as we can. So, anyway, if you find this, please do not pay a great price. This was published oh, in, God, no. on Flea Bay. Go to a, uh, I think it's a Thrift Books. They have several copies. If you're just really interested and you must have this game, don't pay over $25, $30 for this. You can find uh, fairly good copies out there for 10 9 10 bucks even. Yeah, a lot of these managed to float out of people's hands because they were not prized as part of their real-time gaming collection. Right. So they're out there. Huh, All right, so yeah. that's going to do it for us. We got right into it. We went uh, hard into this one, and we hope you enjoyed the ride. But I think it's time to wind it down and, oh, what about that arcane eye settling its inscrutable Aldrich Gate? Oh, wait, you mean you're saving throw this uh, episode. We <laughs> wanted to just talk about this, so don't worry. It's always watching. Oh, the yeah. The eye breathes in arcane auras. Okay. So. A little is eye wreathed in flame. Oh, we're not that eye. Oh, okay. We're not that cool. We're, <laughs> we're the eye with... It's like a couple of slightly bloodshot eye peering around the corner. <laughs> With a confused expression. Okay. Without further ado, though, we're going to wrap this up for you. We've tortured your ears enough. And, uh, of course, let us know what you think, either on our Facebook page or you can get a hold of us on Twitter at all the usual haunts. And we'll catch you next time. And until that next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. Thank you.